Section 15 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 23 Birth of the Empire, Death of the Duke, Part 3. Wellington belonged so much to the past at the time of his death that it seems hardly in place here to say anything about his character as a soldier. But it may be remarked that his success was due in great measure to a sort of inspired common sense which rose to something like genius. He had in the highest conceivable degree the art of winning victories. In war as in statesmanship he had one characteristic which is said to have been the special gift of Julius Caesar and for the lack of which Caesar's greatest modern rival in the art of conquest, the first Napoleon, lost all or nearly all that he had won. Wellington not only understood what could be done, but also what could not be done. The wild schemes of almost universal rule which set Napoleon astray and led him to his destruction would have appeared to the strong common sense of the Duke of Wellington as impossible and absurd as they would have looked to the lofty intelligence of Caesar. It can hardly be questioned that in original genius Napoleon far surpassed the Duke of Wellington, but Wellington always knew exactly what he could do, and Napoleon often confounded his ambitions with his capacities. Wellington provided for everything, looked after everything, never trusted to his star or to chance or to anything, but care and preparation and the proper application of means to ends. Under almost any conceivable conditions, Wellington, pitted against Napoleon, was the man to win in the end. The very genius of Napoleon would sooner or later have left him open to the unsleeping watchfulness, the almost infallible judgment of Wellington. He was as fortunate as he was deserving. No man could have drunk more deeply of the cup of fame and fortune than Wellington, and he was never for one moment intoxicated by it. After all his long wars and his splendid victories, he had some thirty-seven years of peace and glory to enjoy. He held the loftiest position in this country that any man, not a sovereign, could hold, and he ranked far higher in the estimation of his countrymen than most of their sovereigns have done. The rescued emperors and kings of Europe had showered their honors on him. His fame was as completely secure during his lifetime as if death, by removing him from the possibility of making a mistake, had consecrated it. No new war under altered conditions tried the flexibility and the endurance of the military genius, which had defeated in turn all Napoleon's great marshals, as a prelude to the defeat of Napoleon himself. If ever any mortal may be said to have had in life all he could have desired, Wellington was surely that man. He might have found a new contentment in his honors if he really cared much about them, in the reflection that he had done nothing for himself but all for the state. He did not love war. He had no inclination whatever for it. When Lord John Russell visited Napoleon in Elba, Napoleon asked him whether he thought the Duke of Wellington would be able to live thenceforward without the excitement of war. It was probably in Napoleon's mind that the English soldier would be constantly entangling his country in foreign complications for the sake of gratifying his love for the brave squares of war. Lord John Russell endeavored to impress upon the great fallen emperor that the Duke of Wellington 
would as a matter of course lapse into the place of a simple citizen and would look with no manner of regret to the stormy days of battle. Napoleon seems to have listened with a sort of melancholy incredulity and only observed once or twice that it was a splendid game, war. To Wellington it was no splendid game or game of any sort. It was a stern duty to be done for his sovereign and his country and to be got through as quickly as possible. The difference between the two men cannot be better illustrated. It is impossible to compare two such men. There is hardly any common basis of comparison. To say which is the greater, one must first make up his mind as to whether his standard of greatness is genius or duty. Napoleon has made a far deeper impression on history. If that be superior greatness, it would be scarcely possible for any national partiality to claim an equal place for Wellington. But Englishmen may be content with the reflection that their hero saved his country and that Napoleon nearly ruined his. We write this without the slightest inclination to sanction what may be called the British Philistine view of the character of Napoleon. Up to a certain period of his career, it seems to us deserving of almost unmingled admiration, just as his country in her earlier disputes with the other European powers seems to have been almost entirely in the right. But his success and his glory were too strong for Napoleon. He fell for the very want of that simple, steadfast devotion to duty which inspired Wellington always, and which made him seem dignified and great, even in statesmanship for which he was unfitted, and even when in statesmanship he was acting in a manner that would have made another man seem ridiculous rather than respectable. Wellington more nearly resembled Washington than Napoleon. He was a much greater soldier than Washington, but he was not on the whole so great a man. It is fairly to be said for Wellington that the proportions of his personal greatness seem to grow rather than to dwindle as he and his events are removed from us in time. The Battle of Waterloo does not indeed stand as one of its historians has described it among the decisive battles of the world. It was fought to keep the Bonapartes off the throne of France and in twenty-five years after Waterloo, while the victor of Waterloo was yet living, another Bonaparte was preparing to mount that throne. It was the climax of a national policy which, however justifiable and inevitable it may have become in the end, would hardly now be justified as to its origin by one intelligent Englishman out of twenty. The present age is not, therefore, likely to become rhapsodical over Wellington, as our forefathers might have been, merely because he defeated the French and crushed Napoleon. Yet it is impossible for the coolest mind to study the career of Wellington without feeling a constant glow of admiration for that singular course of simple antique devotion to duty. His was truly the spirit in which a great nation must desire to be served. The nation was not ungrateful. It heaped honors on Wellington. It would have heaped more on him if it knew how, it gave him its almost unqualified admiration. On his death, it tried to give him such a public funeral as Hero never had. The pageant was indeed a splendid and a gorgeous exhibition. It was not perhaps very well suited to the temperament and habits of the cold and simple Hero to whose honor it was got up, nor perhaps are gorgeous pageants exactly the sort of performance in which, as a nation, England particularly excels but in the vast 
silent, respectful crowd that thronged the London streets, a crowd such as no other city in the world could show. There was better evidence than pageantry or ceremonial could supply of the esteem in which the living generation held the hero of the last. The name of Wellington had long ceased to represent any hostility of nation to nation. The crowds who filled the streets of London that day had no thought of the kind of sentiment which used to fill the breasts of their fathers when France and Napoleon were named. They honored Wellington only as one who had always served his country as the soldier of England and not as the invader of France or even as the conqueror of Napoleon. The homage to his memory was as pure of selfish passion as his own career. The new Parliament was called together in November. It brought into public life in England a man who afterwards made some mark in our politics, and whose intellect and debating power seemed at one time to promise him a position inferior to that of hardly anyone in the House of Commons. This was Mr. Robert Lowe, who had returned from one of the Australian colonies to enter political life in his native country. Mr. Lowe was a scholar of a highly cultured order, and despite some serious defects of delivery, he proved to be a debater of the very highest class, especially gifted with the weapons of sarcasm, scorn, and invective. He was a liberal in the intellectual sense. He was opposed to all restraints on education and on the progress of a career, but he had a detestation for democratic doctrines which almost amounted to a mania. He despised with the whole force of a temperament very favorable to intellectual scorn, alike the rural Tory and the town radical. His opinions were generally rather negative than positive. He did not seem to have any very positive opinions of any kind where politics were concerned. He was governed by a detestation of abstractions and sentimentalities and views of all sorts. An intellectual Don Juan of the political world, he believed with Moliere's hero that two and two make four and that four and four make eight, and he was impatient of any theory which would commend itself to the mind on less rigorous evidence. If contempt for the intellectual weaknesses of an opposing party or doctrine could have made a great politician, Mr. Lowe would have won that name. In politics, however, criticism is not enough. One must be able to originate, to mold the will of others, to compromise, to lead while seeming to follow, often to follow while seeming to lead. Of gifts like these Mr. Lowe had no share. He never became more than a great parliamentary critic of the acrid and vitriolic style. Almost immediately on the assembling of the new Parliament, Mr. Villers brought forward a resolution not merely pledging the House of Commons to a free trade policy, but pouring out a sort of censure on all who had hitherto failed to recognize its worth. This step was thought necessary and was indeed made necessary by the errors of which Lord Derby had been guilty and the preposterous vaporings of some of his less responsible followers. If the resolution had been passed, the government must have resigned. They were willing enough now to agree on any resolution declaring that free trade was the established policy of the country, but they could not accept the triumphant eulogium which the resolution proposed to offer to the commercial policy of the years when they were the uncompromising enemies of that very policy. They could submit to the punishment imposed on them, 
but they did not like this public kissing of the rod and doing penance. Lord Palmerston, who even up to that time regarded his ultimate acceptance of office under Lord Derby as a not impossible event, if once the Derby party could shake themselves quite free of protection, devised an amendment which afforded them the means of a more or less honourable retreat. This resolution pledged the House to the policy of unrestricted competition, firmly maintained and prudently extended, but recorded no panegyric of the legislation of 1846, and consequent condemnation of those who opposed that legislation. The amendment was accepted by all but the small band of irreconcilable protectionists, 468 voted for it, only 53 against it, and the moan of protection was made. All that long chapter of English legislation was closed. Various commercial and other interests did indeed afterwards demur to the application of the principle of unrestricted competition to their peculiar concerns, but they did not plead for protection. They only contended that the protection they sought for was not in fact protection at all, but free trade under peculiar circumstances. The straightforward doctrine of protection perished of the debate of November 1852. Still the government only existed on sufferance. Their tenure of office was somewhat rudely compared to that of a bailiff put into possession of certain premises who is liable to be sent away at any moment when the two parties concerned in the litigation choose to come to terms. There was a general expectation that the moment Mr. Disraeli came to set out a genuine financial scheme, the fate of the government would be decided. So the event proved. Mr. Disraeli made a financial statement which showed remarkable capacity for dealing with figures. It was subjected to a far more serious test than his first budget, for that was necessarily a mere stopgap or makeshift. This was a real budget, altering and reconstructing the financial system and the taxation of the country. The skill with which the Chancellor of the Exchequer explained his measures and tossed his figures about convinced many even of his strongest opponents that he had the capacity to make a good budget if he only were allowed to do so by the conditions of his party's existence but his cabinet had come into office under special obligations to the country party and the farmers. They could not avoid making some experiment in the way of special legislation for the farmers. They had at the very least to put on an appearance of doing something for them. The Chancellor of the Exchequer might be supposed to be in the position of the soldier in Hogarth's march to Finchley between the rival claimants on his attention. He has promised and vowed to the one but he knows that the slightest mark of civility he offers to her will be fiercely resented by the other. When Mr. Disraeli undertook to favor the country interest and the farmers, he must have known only too well that he was setting all the free traders and peelites against him, and he knew at the same time that if he neglected the country party, he was cutting the ground from beneath his feet. The principle of his budget was the reduction of the malt duties and the increase of the inhabited house duty. Some manipulations of the income tax were to be introduced, chiefly with a view to lighten the impost on farmers' profits, and there was to be a modest reduction of the tea duty. The two points that stood out clear and prominent before the House of Commons were the reduction of the malt duty and the increase of the duty on inhabited houses. The reduction of the malt duty, as Mr. Lowe said in his pungent criticism, was the keystone of the budget. That reduction created a deficit which the inhabited house duty had to be doubled in order to supply. The scheme was a complete failure. 
the farmers did not care much about the concession which had been made in their favor those who had to pay for it in double taxation were bitterly indignant mr disraeli had exasperated the one claimant and not greatly pleased the other the government soon saw how things were likely to go the chancellor of the exchequer began to see that he had only a desperate fight to make the whigs the free traders the peelites and such independent members or unattached members as mr lowe and mr bernal osborne all fell on him it became a combat a outrance it well suited mr disraeli's peculiar temperament during the whole of his parliamentary career he has never fought so well as when he has been free to indulge to the full the courage of despair End of section fifteen